0: You won't want to miss these inspiring stories of entrepreneurship and discovering ways to business differently so you can too. It's
1: been almost 3000 years and Greek mythology has proved that it is not going anywhere. But it can be difficult to find entertaining and engaging retellings of these myths that aren't fictionalized. Lucky for you, I'm here. Let's talk about myths baby is the Greek mythology and ancient history podcast of your dreams. I dive into the convoluted and confusing ancient sources so you don't have to. Listen to Let's Talk About Myths, Baby, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
2: What up? I am Dramos, host of the Life as a Gringo podcast. This is a show for the Nosabo kids, the the 200 percenters. Here we celebrate your otherness and embrace living in the gray area. Every Tuesday, I'll be bringing you conversations around personal growth, issues affecting the Latin community, and much more. Then, every Thursday, I'll be tackling trending stories and current events from our community. Listen to Life as a Gringo on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
3: I'm Johnny B. Good, the host of the podcast Creating a Con, the story of Bitcon. This podcast dives deep into the story of Ray Trapani and his company, Centratech. I'll explore how 320-somethings built a company out of lies, deceit, and greed. I've been saying since a very young age that I was going to be a millionaire. If someone was like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. Listen to Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com.
0: Podcast. I'm Tracy B. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. I think the thing we got the most email about from listeners this year uh, was about the discovery of one of the Franklin expedition's lost ships. Uh, we got a ton of email about it, and especially because that story continued to develop after they found one of the ships. So now that we're into our year in unearthing season, woo, which is a it's a little longer this year than normal because there are some things that are, there's a lot to talk about. Uh, it seemed like a good time to update our previous episode because we already had one in the archive about the Franklin Expedition. So that episode is from the Katie and Sarah era of the podcast. For those of you who have not already heard the story, what we're going to do is first we're going to replay that Katie and Sarah episode to let them tell you about Franklin's efforts to find the Northwest Passage and what likely happened to him and his crew. Then we will come back and Holly and I will talk about the discoveries from 2014 and we'll have our regular listener mail and all of that. If you have already heard this episode from Katie and Sarah and you don't want to listen to it again, you can skip ahead. It is approximately 14 minutes long.
4: We keep getting emails requesting more about Canadian history, and I have something close to Canadian history yeah. today. <laughs> Spooky arctic mystery. So we're going to go ahead and say that counts. We're talking about Sir John Franklin's lost expedition. John Franklin was one of 12 kids, and his parents wanted him to become a clergyman, but he loved the sea, and he was absolutely sure that was his destiny from a young age.
5: So, he entered the Royal Navy at 14, where he had a varied career. He took part in expeditions to Australia, he fought in the Battle of Trafalgar, and he commanded the Trent on an 1818 Arctic expedition, in an attempt to reach the North Pole. And
4: from 1818 to 1822, he conducted an overland expedition from Hudson Bay to the Arctic, I think and surveyed part of the coast, parts that people had never seen before, a large Mm. swath of the coast, and published a book about it, The Narrative of a Journey to the Shores of
5: the Polar Sea. And did another narrative a few years later, after a second overland expedition in the same region. And during this time, it was post-Napoleonic Wars, the British Navy really needed something to do, basically. And they needed so, a purpose. <laughs> yeah. And so, uh, largely thanks to Sir John Barrow, they decided their purpose was going to be to navigate the Northwest Passage. And the Northwest Passage had been an idea floated around since Elizabethan times even. Right. But it was essentially that there was a way to take a ship from the Atlantic to the Pacific going above Canada. And they knew it was there somewhere. They just didn't know where. Somewhere in all that ice between all those islands, they knew there was a way. But it took a very long time to find it and even longer to actually navigate it. So in 1845, they decide they're going to
4: launch another expedition and... Franklin is not their first choice no. because he's older. He's 59 and they think that might be too old for someone who's going to be in such strenuous conditions.
5: Yeah, it it's basically seemed like his naval career was over. He's been the governor of Tasmania for several years. He's been knighted. It doesn't seem like he's the man to choose for your Arctic expedition. But he's convinced that he's the right one. And I think someone said
4: something to him about being 60, and he said, no, no, I'm 59. (laughs) Let's let's make that clear. So it's a go, and Franklin is their choice. And the ships they were going to take were state-of-the-art at the time. They had iron-reinforced hulls and steam engines. They were very
5: well-equipped. Yeah, they have three years' worth of canned food on board, which partly (laughs) ends up being a problem, but we'll get to that. Uh, So they dock in Greenland in July of 1845, and they send home a few men and a batch of letters. Uh, If you were one of the men to be sent home there, you were very lucky because things didn't go well from there on out. The last
4: sighting of them is by British whalers north of Baffin Island at the entrance to Lancaster Sound in July of 1845. And then they disappear and go completely off the map. So what happened? Search parties were sent in 1847 to answer that exact question because two years was too long. They should have heard something by now. Yeah. And And the searches keep going.
5: Yeah, it By 1850, as many as 14 ships were in the area at the same time looking for them. This turned out to be kind of the romantic adventure of the age, searching for Franklin and his lost crew. And consequently, a lot of information about the Northwest Passage was discovered during these rescue attempts. But we're going to kind of give the overview of... What happened to Franklin and his men during this time? This was all pieced together over years and years, but.
4: And something like 30 expeditions to go yeah. and find them. They each came back with little pieces.
5: Yeah. So by uh, in 1845 to 6, they winter at Beachy Island, and three crewmen die there. And they'd started with, what, 129 people? Yeah, okay. 28 or so. So the numbers are dwindling slowly. Yeah.
4: In 1846, the ships, which are named Erebus and Terror, not a good name for ships, leave Beachy (laughs) Island, and they
5: sail down Peel Sound to King William Island. And then by September of 1846, the ships get trapped in the ice off of King William Island in Victoria Street. Um, And so they winter there. And there's a note that was found later uh, from... May 28th, 1847, saying that things were okay. You know, it was, they were stuck in the ice still, but it was going I mean, it was all right. right. But on June 11th, 1847,
4: as close as we can tell, Franklin died. And he is the head of everything, of the whole expedition. And he's one of very few men in the crew who actually has Arctic experience.
5: And things get bad then because that's when the ice from the winter should have thawed and they should have been able to move didn't. on and it doesn't. So they winter again on King William Island. Obviously there are questions of food that are going to come up soon. So they have to start making difficult decisions in the next year about what they're going to do. And they abandon their ships on
4: April 22nd, 1848 and decide to try to make a go of it. And
5: in a note that was later found, uh By April 25th, 1848, 24 men had died, and the survivors were marching south to the Black River. And things got very messy there. Uh, They resorted to cannibalism, and a lot of them were addled by what later looked like lead poisoning. Um, And some people say the lead poisoning was a result of poorly tinned foods. Right. The foods were apparently supplied by kind of a cut rate dealer and lead was supposed to have actually dripped into the cans from the soldering. Uh, But uh, an author of Ice Blink, Scott Cookman actually has a different theory and he thinks that botulism in the cans caused all of the mental and physical issues that happened and was responsible for why these men died on the ice, not on the ship. On the ice, when they were away from reliable cooking sources, because proper heating will that kill... kills the
4: Clostridium spores. Yeah, but if they don't have a stove, to if heat... you're out on
5: the ice and maybe you have a dinky little stove or not a stove at all, and so he he kind of thought that explained why they all die out there and not on the ships. And
4: there were there was also evidence of scurvy, which is what happens when you don't get enough vitamin C and scurvy and lead poisoning lead to the same kinds of of weakness that make you unable to do the hard work that's necessary
5: to do in the Arctic. And they weren't they weren't adopting um, Inuit ways of dealing with the weather and they were carrying lots of unnecessary supplies (laughs) with them. So it was not, they weren't equipped for an overland expedition No, The
4: list of their supplies, I wish I had it on me, is just so strange. It wasn't at all survival stuff. It was things like books. Silver. (laughs) Yes, you don't need silver if you're trapped in the Arctic. For future reference, for all our listeners, don't bring the silver. (laughs)
5: The first search for Franklin goes out in 1847. The first official search isn't until 1848. And over the years, a lot of the expeditions get very close to where Franklin's ships were actually abandoned. But there's a lot of delay. And one of the reasons is when ships were over there looking at Peel Sound, where the the boats went... It seemed impossible that they could have gone in that direction because the ice cover was so heavy. Right. So they just skipped over
4: it. And of course, there was a huge cold snap going on in the Arctic at this time, too. So these weren't normal conditions for that area.
5: The early searches turned up some accounts from Inuit who had seen the explorers and had stories about starving men. There was even one account that was taken much, much later from an Inuit in 1929 saying that uh, some of the boats were remanned and uh, they knew of large vessels that lay on the other side of the island, basically far away from where they're supposed to have been. And they also said that because the
4: winter was so cold, they, too, were having a really hard time finding food and hunting. So if the crew was depending on the locals for food, they didn't have any to give.
5: Well, and it's likely that the crew wouldn't ask for help, too.
4: They were self-sufficient British men. Yeah, Royal (laughs) Navy
5: men, exactly. In the process of the search, the Northwest Passage is actually completed, although it's by several ships and <laughs> sled. It's not completed by the one guy, <laughs> one ship until the twentieth century, I believe. Um, but in eighteen fifty nine, there is a very important search mission sent out. The Royal Navy was effectively done with this after They've getting been looking for years. Yeah, and then they they felt like they had gotten it back gotten back enough information about the men, but Franklin's widow wasn't satisfied.
4: Jane Lady Franklin was the first woman to receive the Founder's Medal of the Royal Geographical Society because of everything she'd done to organize these expeditions. She was determined that they would at least find some concrete proof that the men were dead.
5: So she hires Captain Francis Leopold McClintock, who had actually been on several earlier search missions, Um, And during some of those had really developed the art of sledging across the land and learned a lot of the Inuit customs and helped prepare future Arctic explorers for conditions.
4: And he was very effective because he used all of these other
5: resources.
4: And his crew found skeletons of the Franklin expedition. I think only four of them.
5: Yeah, but uh, most importantly, he finds that note, um, which has the first message saying that everything is okay, and then the later message, abandoning ship, (laughs) lots of people dying, we're walking, um, finds it in a pile of stones on the icy island. It's very creepy.
4: It is, and we'll never know entirely what happened. These are just, again, what? historians and scientists are able to piece together from the evidence that they had. So there are things we're sure of, like there was too much lead in the bodies. There was evidence of scurvy. There was definitely cannibalism from what yeah. they can tell from the bones. But some of it we'll never quite know.
5: Yeah, And a very strange thing to think of today is uh, icebreaker luxury cruises go right up by the island where they all died now. Um It's strange to think how accessible all that is. And actually, the Northwest Passage is open. Uh, It first opened in 2007. Enough ice had melted that it was considered fully navigable. And it happened again in 2008, along with the Northeast Passage, which made the North Pole circumnavigable for the first time in... 125,000 years. That is insane. See, that's why we need your green knowledge (laughs) on the podcast. And I'll end
4: with the memorial by Tennyson, who was a kinsman through marriage to Franklin. And he said, Not here. The white north has thy bones, and though heroic sailor's soul art passing on thine happier voyage now toward no earthly pole. And you had mentioned a rather ironic fact that happened from that memorial poem.
5: Yeah, another ill-fated polar explorer, uh, the American Adolphus Greeley, became fascinated by the Arctic by a visit to London where he read those words. So, Holly, before we
0: get into what they found about this expedition in 2014, let's take a brief word from a sponsor. That sounds grand. And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out season two of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks.
2: I'm preaching to somebody today who is waiting for God to give you your next step. And you don't know what it is yet. You need God to show you your next step. And invite you to walk in your authenticity. Listen to Life as a Gringo as a part of the Michael Tura Podcast Network, available on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Who hasn't
1: heard names like Achilles or Odysseus, Cassandra, Medusa? But how much do you know about them from the ancient world? Let's talk about myths, baby. Is the podcast bringing the ancient sources to life? Greek myth and history is timeless, and unless you've been living under a rock, you have seen just how true that is today. But there is so much more to these characters and stories than what pop culture can do justice. I'm Liv Albert, the host of Let's Talk About Myths, Baby, and every week I bring you stories from the ancient world, both mythological and historical, to breathe new life into these thousands of years old stories.
0: Although the searches for Franklin's expedition actually started way back in 1848 when nobody had heard from them for about three years, the effort that found the Erebus actually started in 2008 and was headed up by Parks Canada. Uh, The the expedition that, that found the ship is called the Victoria Strait Expedition. And there are a lot of people, departments and agencies, both public and private, involved in it.
6: The Canadian Hydrographic Service is using multi-beam sonar to map the seafloor, and that's a project that would have gone on regardless of the search for the expedition, since it's important to nautical safety. The Canadian Coast Guard helps support the search teams overall, while also working to protect the local communities and ecosystem. The Russian ship Academic Sergei Vavilov acted as a platform for an underwater survey vehicle.
0: Otherwise, the four primary ships in this expedition are the Canadian Coast Guard CCGS Sir Wilfrid Laurier, the Royal Canadian Navy's HMCS Kingston, the Arctic Research Foundation's research vessel Martin Bergman, and One Ocean Expedition's One Ocean Voyager. There are also some smaller survey vessels involved, along with a Canadian-made underwater autonomous vehicle. And satellite imagery is involved also from Canadian Space Agency's Radarsat-2, satellite.
6: On September 1st of 2014, a team of three searchers headed by archaeologist Doug Stenton discovered a couple of artifacts from the Franklin Expedition on Hat Island, and that's in the territory of Nunavut, not far southwest of King William Island. These were an iron fitting and what appeared to be a wooden plug and were called, quote, the first artifacts found in modern times.
0: Then, on September 7th, the underwater autonomous vehicle, which had been acquired pretty recently by Parks Canada, uh, spotted what was definitely one of Franklin's two ships in the waters of Victoria Strait, just off of King William Island.
6: And this matched Inuit oral history, as well as testimony taken from Inuit witnesses in the late 1840s, which put one of Franklin's ships sinking to the west of King William Island, with the other sinking farther to the south. In other words, it was where the indigenous population had said it would be all along. We'll link to
0: some sites that have pictures in the show notes because it's pretty incredible how much detail is in the sonar images. That technology has come an enormously long way in the last few decades. And without those improvements, it would have been basically still impossible to
6: find the ship. So congratulations and praise rolled in from Prime Minister Stephen Harper, as well as from Queen Elizabeth. Overall, the wreckage that was found on the 7th
0: looks to be in fantastic condition, with minimal damage to the deck and only a little damage to the hull. The masts had been sheared away, but researchers were really hopeful that much of the ship's contents would be found intact.
6: The first dive to the site took place on September 17th, and seven dives took place over the course of two days. Thanks to the work of divers, sonar imagery, high-resolution photos and videos, and examination of the artifacts, researchers were able to definitively conclude that the ship was the Erebus on September 30th.
0: Among the artifacts, the ship's bell was found intact during the very first dive. It was brought up to the surface during the last dive down to the vessel, and then it was sent to the Parks Canada Archaeological Conservation Laboratory in Ottawa, It had to stay wet the entire time so that it wouldn't deteriorate on the way. The conservation efforts on the bell are expected to take about 18 months.
6: And as of when we recorded this, the terror has not been located.
0: As a total side note, uh, one of the other jobs of this 2014 expedition uh, was reinterring remains that had been exhumed for research purposes previously. So I thought that was an interesting... Side point. Yeah. Do you have listener mail? Uh, We got several comments and emails following our episode on the Vero Brothers, which was actually one that Holly researched and did all of the outlining for. But a lot of the commentary we were getting was stuff I said off script, (laughs) Uh, which was basically that I found it particularly horrifying and terrible that a couple of people dug up a man from his recently interred grave And then taxidermied him for display as though he were an animal. Yeah. Right. So uh, there's sort of a selection. Uh, The first is from Katie. And Katie says, I just finished the podcast on the Varro brothers. And I agree with the injustice and distaste of applying taxidermy to a human, particularly when there was no consent. However, I've also wondered about this in the context of mummies found in Egypt. I acknowledge that these are different situations, but the subject reminded me of it. We know a significant amount about Egyptian funereal practices and beliefs. It is clear that they did not want their remains disturbed, yet I've never heard of anyone having qualms about displaying them. It just seems to be accepted as standard. Of course, I'm not against archaeological digs and artifact recovery, but the actual display of the remains seemed to go far past the normal ideas of respect for the dead. Anyway, I just wondered uh, what your thought was on the issue here. I have been enjoying the podcast for several years now, and thank you all for the great work that you do. Uh, The next comment was actually from when we put the show notes post on our Facebook, and it started with a comment from Lee. Lee says, I was surprised that no mention was made of the current Body Worlds exhibit with the real human bodies treated in plasticine. They donated their bodies to science, but they are still real former humans on display. Is Body Worlds immoral? immoral? I know Botswana man didn't volunteer to be displayed, but then again, I've seen real mummies displayed in a museum, which are definitely grave robbed. And I didn't hear any mention of how immoral that was. Is length of time dead the key to whether or not it's okay to display dead bodies? Uh, I kind of responded to that, and then one of the responses that I got to that response was, I'm not sure I see the difference between this grave robbing and a mummy. I think that the display of mummies is grave robbing. How the body was prepared for burial or interment is irrelevant. The point is that the person and the person's family and friends intended the body to remain where it was. So sort of address all of this at once. There is actually a lot of discussion about whether it's appropriate to display mummies in museums. If you like Google mummy ethics, yeah. <laughs> you'll get you'll get lots of discussion about that. I think that is a worthwhile thing to talk about and a worthwhile thing to consider. Like even the entire field of archaeology, there's a lot of discussion about like what is archaeology? What is grave robbing? Where is that line? Uh, I don't know if I can come to a real decision about how I feel about that particular aspect of it. There's just a lot going on in terms of uh, everything from colonialism to genuinely educating people about the past. So what I do want to say is that that is completely different in, in the sense of scale from to be totally blunt. White people digging up an African person and treating him as though he were an animal and putting that in a museum, as would be done with animals. Like, that is not the same thing.
6: The mindset there was kind of, look at this exotic specimen, and it was not even this is a human, necessarily. Uh, right. They really treated him as a subspecies, like a species lesser than them after they had just attended his funeral.
0: Yeah, a lot of the same issues and ideas are present in both things. Like a lot of the removal of uh mummies done from Egyptian pyramids was done by white people and there are elements of race and colonialism and sort of feeling entitled to just take Artifacts from a place like that's there are definitely elements of those two things. But uh, it's like, to me, unquestionably worse for uh, somebody to dig up a person recently buried and then treat him as though he were an animal, especially given the greater context of race in the world. So we are not ignorant of mummies. There's definitely a whole huge separate discussion or argument to have about mummies and and what the ethics are of that uh, it is just not the same thing as the racist horror of mounting a black person as though he were an animal and that is my rant about that. So I completely understand why people would connect it with mummies but uh, that's it's, it's just a different it's a far cry so, uh, if you would like to write to us, perhaps to yell at me about what I just said <laughs> or something else. I don't know. Uh, you can write to us. We're at history podcast at HowStuffWorks.com. We're also on Facebook at Facebook.com slash history and on Twitter at MissedInHistory. Our Tumblr is MissedInHistory.tumblr.com. We're also on Pinterest at Pinterest.com slash We have a Spreadshirt store where you can buy T-shirts and things. And that is at MissedInHistory.Spreadshirt.com. If you would like to learn a little more about what we talked about today, come to our parent company's website, which is HowStuffWorks.com. Plunk the words Franklin Expedition into the search bar. You will find 10 true stories of survival cannibalism. You can also come to our website where we're going to definitely in the show notes for this link up some awesome pictures of what this ship looks like under the water. Uh, we also have an archive of every episode and that is at MistInHistory.com. So you can do all that stuff. And a whole lot more at HowStuffWorks.com or mythinhistory.com.
1: For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.
2: issues affecting the Latin community, and much more. Then, every Thursday, I'll be tackling trending stories and current events from our community. Listen to Life as a Gringo on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: It's been almost 3,000 years, and Greek mythology has proved that it is not going anywhere. But it can be difficult to find entertaining and engaging retellings of these myths that aren't fictionalized. Lucky for you, I'm here. Let's Talk About Myths, Baby is the Greek mythology and ancient history podcast of your dreams. I dive into the convoluted and confusing ancient sources so you don't have to. Listen to Let's Talk About Myths, Baby on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
3: I'm Johnny B. Good, the host of the podcast Creating a Con, the story of BitCon. This podcast dives deep into the story of Ray Trapani and his company Centratech. I'll explore how 320-somethings built a company out of lies, deceit, and greed. I've been saying since a very young age that I was going to be a millionaire. If someone was like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. Listen to Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I am the ferryman.
6: Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts.